0: I want you to fill in the blank. What I most need in my life right now is. Six of you just mumbled money. Several of you thought to yourselves, time. If I just had more time to get it all done. For some of you, maybe it's something very specific that you, that you have in mind, that you're putting in that blank. You need a job. Or you need a different job. You need a, a cure or a healing. You need uh, a restoration in some relationship that is currently broken. Or maybe you fill in that blank more abstractly. Maybe you think, man, what I really need in my life right now, is, is love. I, I know I'm not doing a good job loving my spouse or loving my kids or my neighbors. Maybe you think, what I most need right now is discipline. If I could just be more disciplined in my prayer life, in my diet Maybe I I most need encouragement. You know, if, if someone would just encourage me, then I could just keep on keeping on. That would be okay. Maybe your blank is why you're here this morning. Maybe you're here this morning seeking what it is that you have in that blank. I think a lot as your pastor, your elders think a lot about what you need. We're gonna meet this afternoon, the elders meet this afternoon, we'll spend a lot of time in prayer, praying about what you need. The needs that are on the surface that you would most immediately say, oh yes, this is exactly what I need. But then we also try to be guided by the scriptures and drill down a little deeper than that to what we think and what the Bible says You and I really need, foundationally, at the core, what what our greatest need or needs are. Our verses this week in John chapter 12 point us in that direction. Point us in the direction of greatest need, not just surface felt needs. But these verses begin somewhat startlingly with the turmoil and the agitation of our Savior. I want to ask you to stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 12, verses 27 through 36. Jesus begins, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inspired inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray for the help that we need. Father, again, would you come? Would you allow us to benefit from your presence, your active presence in these moments where you are coming to us through Your living and active Word, this Word that's sharper than a two-edged sword, would You cut us open with it? Would You reveal and expose what needs to be revealed and exposed? Would You show us our greatest need? Would you reveal that to us this morning, that we may behold it, that we may be ben- that we may benefit from it, that we may be changed by it? We ask these things in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. Please be seated. It may be a bit of a jolt to you, indeed. I hope it is. To find our Savior as we do. As this passage begins, Jesus in verse 27 is the troubled Son of God. You've got an outline in your worship folder that will help you follow along. This troubled Son of God who declared in last week's verses that His hour had now come, the hour for Him to be glorified, the hour for Him in fact to die, this troubled Son of God is now having a moment of crisis. The, this word here, this verb troubled, it's, it's a strong word. It has elements of horror to it, elements of revulsion, of, of anxiety, of, of agitation. As Jesus considers this hour that is now upon him, it's like he's having second thoughts. This is unsettling to read, is it not? We've seen lots of power and strength from Jesus in the pages of this gospel, but we've not seen this. No sooner do the words come out of his mouth, my hour has come, than he is contemplating asking God to call it all off to save him from this very hour that has now come. What what are we to make of this? One temptation would be to explain it away. It's not what it appears on the surface. That's what some of the commentators do. Some of the commentators are just way too uncomfortable by the prospect of this. At the thought of a Savior who somehow waffles in his resolve, and they say, oh, no, 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 no. What Jesus is troubled about has nothing to do with him. It's about his disciples, whether his disciples will be steadfast and faithful. That's what some of the commentators are offering. But that simply doesn't bear up under the scrutiny of the passage. The thought really does cross Jesus' mind. He really does consider, at least momentarily, pulling the ripcord. Open parachute, save me from this. He has that option. He's not forced into this hour. He's willingly approaching this hour. Now, there's two important things that I want you to see here in Jesus being the troubled Son of God. Those those two things are gravity and empathy. And by gravity, I mean that Jesus is feeling feeling the weight of what is coming. And he feels all of it. See, he's not drawing on supernatural power to keep from feeling what's about to happen. No, as the God man, as God who has taken on human flesh, he's not just taken on human flesh, he's also taken on human feeling. Jesus, the Son of God, has two distinct natures. He is fully human and he is fully divine. They're not mingled. They're not blended. He's not kind of human and kind of divine. No, fully each of those. Now, admittedly, that's something kind of tough to wrap this tiny brain around. But suffice it to say he fully felt in his being, what was going on and what was about to happen. And what he was feeling was more than just the normal dread of human death. None of us likes to, if you're healthy, ponder and think about your own death and its approach. It's just not something that we naturally are fond of. But Jesus' trouble and dread goes beyond that. It's way more than simply not looking forward to dying. His upcoming death was full of horror for him. And it's not just the physical, excruciating pain of the cross. It's much more about being crushed under the enormous weight of all the sins of God's elect that Jesus will suffer the wrath of God for. Wrath that will be poured out because of those sins. You see, Jesus endures not simply death, but punishment from his Father on our behalf That's what he's dreading. He's dreading being separated from the loving presence of his Father that he has known for all eternity. That's what he's dreading. He's feeling the weight of all that. No wonder he might, if even just for a moment, shrink back from it and say, wait. It's no wonder that he should be at a loss for words. He says, I'm not even sure what to say. Gravity. Weight. The second thing, it's a glorious thing to see here in our Savior being troubled, in the Son of God being troubled, is empathy. What a wonderful gift of grace to us that we see our Savior in a moment like this. First, because it does give us some sense of what he did for us, of the enormity of the price paid, but also what fellowship we have with him. What a, what a friend we have in Jesus we sang. When we're troubled... When we know what we've been called to, what our purpose is, what obedience is supposed to look like, but it feels like too much. It feels like we we can't. In those moments, the tendency is to feel unworthy, to feel like our weakness somehow pushes us away from Jesus when actually it draws us closer. He knows what we're feeling. He felt it. Way more intense than we'll ever feel. He doesn't despise us for our weakness. No, He empathizes. He he comes to you and He says, Sister, I know. Brother, I know. Full well. He draws us toward him, even so that we would cry out to him, just like he cried out to the Father. See, that's the right instinct. When you're at the end of your rope, you can't fathom how to go forward. Cry out. That's what he does. That's what Jesus does to his Father. Now my soul is troubled. What can I say? Father. That's what I can say. Father. Jesus cries out to his Father. See, he's stopping himself, if you will. He's he's putting the brakes on his upset. He's putting the brakes on his turmoil. He's saying to himself, now wait a minute. This is my purpose. This is why I've come to this hour. See, we've seen multiple times in this gospel, I could give you a a big list of places in this gospel where we have seen Jesus' deep, deep, steadfast commitment to obeying the Father's will and the Father's plan, again and again and again. And so he's catching himself in this moment. He's crying out to the Father. And when he cries out to the Father, he's asking him for something. It's very interesting what he asks for. He doesn't, in fact, ask him to save him from this hour. He asks him for something far more essential and foundational and fundamental than that. Jesus is putting the brakes on his trouble and asking God for the most important thing in verse 28. Glorify your name. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I'm dreading it. The path before me is so daunting. But the most important thing I can fathom right now is your glory. More important than my comfort, more important than life itself, is your glory. Jesus is able almost instantly to course correct like this, to to be in, in the midst of this intense agitation and turmoil and trouble, but to say, now, wait a minute. He course corrects and he goes from this overwhelming trouble to his concern for God's glory. Jesus does that quickly. You and I, not as quick, admittedly. But the promise is the longer we are being conformed by the Father to the image of the Son, that response time will grow a little shorter and a little shorter along the way. The more quickly we'll be able to pivot from our trouble to a concern for his glory. Jesus is the troubled son who cries out for the Father's glory. Now, when Jesus cries out, he gets an answer. He gets an audible answer. <laughs> One of only three times in his life and ministry where we get this audible voice from heaven. Uh, happened at his baptism, it happened at the transfiguration, and it happens So what does this voice say? Jesus asks the Father. He says, Father, glorify your name. And the Father, the voice responds from heaven, and he says, I'm on it. Been doing it. Will continue to do it. It's what I do. Our God is a self Glorifying God, a God who consistently brings glory to himself. That's the whole reason the Father sent the Son in the first place. It was not primarily for our benefit, though we love to inject ourselves as the reason for everything. It was for his glory. Now, if you bristle at that a bit, and that would be normal for you to do. If you bristle at that and you say, I don't know, does that, doesn't feel right? Is that okay? I'd take you back to Ezekiel 36, which I always love to take you to Ezekiel 36. And we could read a whole long passage, but I want to give you the, the beginning and the end of a passage. Beginning verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, say to the church, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. And the passage goes on. Read it later this afternoon. But he says it again at the end, in verse 32 for emphasis. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. God's Saving work. Indeed, all God's works throughout Scripture have His own glory as the chief end. What's the chief end of God? To glorify Himself. And that, maybe you bristle at it because it just, it sounds kind of egotistical. It sounds kind of arrogant. It's anything but. For me and you, oh yeah. It'd be a terrible thing for you and I to do. But for him, the supremely worthy one, the holy one, majestic, sovereign, great and mighty, it would be wrong if he didn't draw attention to himself. If he didn't put his glory on display, see, friends, that's what we most need. That's the real, true way to fill in our blank. What we most need is to see his glory, to behold his glory, and Jesus knows that. He knows that's our greatest need. That's why he tells the crowd what he does in verse 30. This voice that you hear, this voice, it ain't for my sake. I don't need this voice. You need this voice. You need to behold his glory. We need to behold his glory. But unfortunately, that voice from heaven fell on deaf ears and continues to fall on deaf ears. That voice fell on the ears of a bunch of glory thieves like we all are. See, here's the pattern that we see in Scripture and in our lives. God is consistently bringing glory to himself. And man is consistently trying to rob God of that glory. That's how the pattern works. We see it even in these few verses. Uh, verse 29, this voice comes from heaven in response to Jesus crying out to the Father. And what do the people say? Well, they, they try to explain it away. Huh, must be thunder. You see a cloud somewhere? Might be about to rain. At most, they say, eh, maybe it was an angel. Later, they're going to try to contradict what Jesus says, try to disprove that he's who he's claiming to be. Because verse 32, which is very important, sort of the center of this this passage, Jesus says he's going to be lifted up. And we're going to talk about the ambiguity of, of that verb lifted up in just a bit, but the crowd knows. The crowd gets it. The crowd understands that by saying lifted up, he is pointing to his death. Jesus is talking about the fact that he's going to die. And so the crowd in verse 34 says, uh, Hang on, mister. Not so fast. Uh, because we have heard, we have heard in the law that Messiah, that Christ, can't die. He has to remain forever. So you, sir, are either wrong about what's going to happen, or you're not who you say you are. Now, we're not sure exactly what Old Testament passage they have in mind, uh, because certainly many, many places in Scripture do indicate that Messiah will, in fact, reign forever. This, this descendant who will take David's throne will have an eternal kingdom. Lots of places that they could be referring to, but see, there's, there's plenty of other places in Scripture that also speak about how this successor to David's throne Uh, will be a suffering servant. He'll be one who will be crushed for the sins of his people. But you see, those passages, those don't play in and line up as well with their preconceived notions about what Messiah is supposed to do and who he is supposed to be. So they tell Jesus, uh, you're not really going to die or you're not really who you claim to be because our Messiah... Right, The one we're expecting, the one we're waiting for, uh, he will not die. Thank you very much. He will, in fact, be triumphant. And they think that they are effectively shutting Jesus up. Right? They ask this question, who is this son of man? And they think they're dropping the mic and walking away and Jesus is forever silenced. They, they, they're passing their judgment on Jesus. We're done with you. We have weighed you and found you lacking. They think they pass judgment on Jesus when the harsh reality is it is time for judgment, but they are the ones. We are the ones. The glory thieves are the ones who will be judged. Verse 31, Now is the judgment of the world. All these glory thieves. All these that Paul summarizes very aptly in Romans 3. right A verse we were talking about in Sunday school this morning. A verse you're well familiar with, Romans 3.23. All have sinned and all fall short of. What is it that we fall short of? Glory. We have fallen short of God's glory. Now, we have again in these verses, Jesus referring to himself as light, right? That's the big theme of chapter eight. I'm the light of the world, Jesus says. He's referring to himself again as light. Now, a big part of what he does as the light of the world is to expose, to bring to light that we are glory thieves, to bring to light that we have fallen short of that glory, to bring to light that we all, in fact, have sinned. And as he exposes us, he's calling us to believe in the light. But our ongoing problem is that we are prone to keep walking in that darkness that we walk in, not just to walk in it, but to love it even. I'll take you back to John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. And this is the judgment. We're talking about judgment, okay? The light has come into the world, that's Jesus, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Jesus is appealing to folks for one of the last times in person. Believe in the light. He's making an offer to them. Verse 36, if you will believe in the light, you can go from being a glory thief to being a son of light, to being a daughter of light. Now, how is that possible? How can he make such a an incredible offer that he does. It's only possible because he's offering to them a glorious rescue. The final point there in your outline, and this is going back to verse 32. When I am lifted up, he says, I will draw all people to myself. Now, quick side note, all people, what do we make of that? Well, it's not every single person. We're not universalists. It's easy to read the Scriptures and see that that's just not true. So it is not every single person without exception. That's not what the all means, but the all means all people without distinction without regard to race or ethnicity or geography. And that builds on last week. We saw when the Greeks came to seek Jesus, right? This great turning point in the timeline of Jesus' ministry. It flipped for him. The hour had now come because these Gentiles, these non-Jews are seeking him. And so we do understand that Jesus is to be the Savior both of Jew and Gentile alike. So that's the all. The key here, the thing we really need to look at is the being lifted up. When I am lifted up, Jesus says. That verb for lifted up, it's ambiguous on purpose. There's there's a couple of meanings at work here. Because to lift someone up can mean to to praise them. Right? We use that language sometimes. Jesus, we want to lift you up. We want to lift up your name. And we mean by lift up, we mean exalt. We mean glorify. But it can also mean, and this would be back in chapter 3, although we're not going to turn there, like Moses lifting up the bronze serpent. And the Son of Man also must be lifted up to die. Lifted up on a cross. We've got conflicting, we've got competing concepts here. We've got glory and exaltation on the one hand and death on the other. A, a cruel, a shameful, a, a humiliating, cursed death on a tree. Which is it? Which does Jesus mean when he speaks of being lifted up? And of course, he means both. He means that. His glory, in fact, the Father's glory, finds its highest and ultimate display. See, Jesus is glorified not despite the cross, but in the cross. It's a peculiar glory. It's a, a paradoxical glory. To crucify Him is to glorify Him. They're inextricably linked. He's the glorious one because he's the willing one. Because he didn't pray that prayer, save me from this hour. He was willing to humble himself, willing to die for his followers. Paul got that in Philippians 2 in these beautiful verses. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, that's a linking word. These are connected inextricably. You cannot separate these two. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the Earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father, we get the rescue and our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit gets the glory. A God who seeks his own glory Sends his only son to pay a price so great that he is truly, deeply troubled. But because he too has his eyes set on glory, he allows himself to be lifted up so that we, glory thieves that we are, can be rescued even as he is glorified. Oh, Jesus, what a great Savior! you are. Thank you for your trouble. Thank you that you agonized even if just for a moment about what lay before you. Thank you that we see in that both the gravity of what you experienced and that we can know you as a friend that you can empathize with us. Father, would you, in fact, this morning, whatever little need we may have put in our blank to begin with, would you show us your glory? Would you allow us to behold your glory? In as much as we can handle it, without being undone, would you show us your glory? glory That's what we need to see. And we thank you in advance in Jesus name and for his sake. Amen. Would you now